recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station and a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. Stephen B. Bright is professor of practice at Georgia State College of Law, as well as a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and visiting professor of law at Georgetown. He spent 35 years at the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta, first as a director for 22 years, then as a president and senior counsel through 2016. He has tried capital cases to juries in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, and argued and won four capital cases before the Supreme Court. Subjects of his litigation, teaching, and writings include capital punishment, legal representation of poor people accused of crimes, racial discrimination, conditions and practices in prisons and jails, and judicial independence. And he received the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award in 1998. Quite an accomplished man. I am honored to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. You are a visiting professor of law at Georgetown, which is why right. you're in town. And actually, right. this is your second time here. Right. You were here, I want to say, three weeks ago. Right. At the beginning of your course. And hopefully we'll get the chance for you to stay again before you head out. But yeah, it says you argued and won four capital cases before the Supreme Court. What were those cases about? Well, three of the cases were about race discrimination and jury selection. The first one was probably the most outrageous one was a case in which a prosecutor told the jury commissioners to underrepresent black people in the jury pool so that when the citizens were summoned to the courtroom uh, for jury selection, there would be a substantial underrepresentation of African Americans. That would make it possible for the prosecutor to strike the few that were left and have all white juries. So that was a case that what happened was he had written a secret memorandum uh, to the jury commissioners. Mm. However, we discovered it. It was never supposed to be discovered. And once it was discovered, the Georgia court said, well, it's too late. You should have raised it before. And our argument was, well, we couldn't have raised it before. It was secret. In fact, it was a crime. It's a five-year felony to rig juries on the basis of race. Like the and prosecutor would the have prosecutor, faced five years. Yes, wow. if anybody had wanted to follow up. Uh, and actually, we lost the case in the lower courts. And the Supreme Court of the United States granted review in the case, which is very unusual. They don't do that that often, and reversed the case nine to nothing. We got all nine justices, and they said that, you know, this uh, was not uh, acceptable, and they could not rule that we should have raised it when we didn't even know about it, that that's just not fair. That's basically what they boiled down to. Uh, and the young man in that case, Tony Amadeo, later... Uh, went to college while he was in uh, prison 
and graduated from Mercer University and uh, later was paroled and is now living in Texas. That is amazing. Yeah. And like you said, this is a capital case. So yeah, he, this he is someone that was penalty. facing the death penalty. No, well, he not facing the death penalty. He almost got executed. Uh, he got sentenced to death one month after he got arrested in a two-day trial that didn't amount to anything. And if it had not been for the Supreme Court taking the case and reversing it, he most certainly would have been put to death by the state of Georgia. So it was a very, very close call. He had been through all the courts that reviewed it, the Georgia Supreme Court, the federal courts. Everybody had rejected all of our arguments. And then lo and behold, the Supreme Court rules with us nine to nothing. So it came out pretty well in the end, but very, very fortunate that that case came out the way it did. I guess you had to file with all of those other courts. Oh, yes. Before you could file to the Supreme Court. Right. Did it feel like a Hail Mary? Oh, when we went to the Supreme Court, it was definitely a Hail Mary. And quite frankly, um, when you file for review in the Supreme Court, you know the chances are very slim that the court is going to grant it. We did not expect the court to grant it, but they did. And um, we felt like once they did grant it that we had a very good chance, and obviously we were right about that. I guess the the argument that you were making was that the prosecutor in the death penalty case was violating the law that was established earlier by the Supreme Court in a case called, uh, I think, Batson versus Kentucky? Well, that was the other two cases. Both involved Batson versus Kentucky. Okay. Antonio Medeo's case, what we basically were just saying is it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that you cannot discriminate on the basis of race. And once we found that memo, Mm -hmm. we knew that he had discriminated, intentionally discriminated on the basis of race. There was no denying what was on that paper. Yeah. He said the percentage of black people in the population is X, and you are to put this many fewer black people in the jury pool. So it was blatant. In the jury pool. Outrageous, right. The pool from which the jurors are selected, right. So it was before even this jury selection. Was. Right, right. Okay. Right. But So right. Batson refers to just jury selection. Batson refers to the process that when you're selecting a jury, each side in a criminal case, and it depends on the state how many, but each side has a certain number of what are called peremptory strikes or discretionary strikes. For example, uh, you qualify a number of people on each side. Let's say the prosecution strikes 10, the defense strikes 10, and the 12 people that are left are the jury. That's the way in which most juries are selected. Some states it may be more. In Louisiana, they strike 12. Georgia, 10. It just depends on, on where you are. In Alan Snyder's case, the prosecutor had struck all the African Americans in order to get an all-white jury. Uh, The same thing had happened in Tim Foster's case was a case out of Rome, Georgia. Again, sort of like the first case, we found the prosecutor's notes that left no doubt uh, that they were striking on the basis of race. And it was another case where we were very fortunate to find out that there were records that clearly proved that the prosecution was motivated by race. I didn't have any doubt about it because I knew the two prosecutors. I knew they were racist. They always struck all the blacks. But proving that to a court is very, very, very difficult because it's very hard to prove intent. And you have to prove that the person intentionally discriminated. But the Supreme Court has said where all the evidence considers together shows that the strike was substantially motivated by race then that violates the Constitution. 
And that's what we proved in both Alan Snyder's case, which was a case out of Louisiana, and uh, Tim Foster's case, which was a case out of Georgia. These are both Supreme Court capital cases. Yes, both Supreme Court capital cases. Okay. African-American men are getting shot by police officers uh, all across the nation. Right. But yet still these officers are able to get off. Right. And sometimes not even be charged. Right. Is a similar thing happening there? Well, what's happening there is you're seeing these prosecutors where their racial bias, uh, instead of charging these officers, often going to the grand jury, which is not the trial jury. The grand jury is a larger jury which helps the prosecutor decide whether to charge people or not. Normally, all the grand jury does is hear the evidence and decide either yes, charge the person, there's enough evidence to charge them, or no, there's not enough evidence, so don't go forward. But what's happened in the Tamir Rice case and what happened in uh, Ferguson uh, after Michael Brown was killed and what happened in Mm -hmm. Staten Island uh, after Eric Garner was choked to death was the prosecutors uh, called the officers and called their witnesses in the grand jury. This is not a, a, an adversary process. There's no, uh, no, the people who were wanting them to be indicted did not have a voice in this. And then they would, uh, the prosecutor can pretty much get the grand jury to do whatever he or she wants, uh, and the grand juries would not indict, would not charge, and they'd say, well, they've been exonerated. Uh, that's not true. I mean, it's just simply not true. It's using the system, twisting the system to make it come out a certain way. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is the grand jury happens before the trial jury. Right. And the grand jury is just in place to figure out, hey, is there enough to move forward with the trial? Exactly. Okay. Unlike a trial jury where you have the prosecution and the defense, which both present their case. Right. In the grand jury, only the prosecution presents. Right. And it's in secret. It's all done in secret. It's not public. A trial jury, as you know is like if there's a trial, everybody can go and watch and the public can watch and it's an adversary process. There's the defense and there's the prosecution. Each side makes the best case it can and then the 12 people on the jury uh, make a decision about whether uh, there's guilt or innocence. The real problem with those cases with the use of the grand jury was the way the prosecutor abused the grand jury process. Regardless of whether those people were fair people or not, the grand jury is not designed to be a trial jury. And that's what those prosecutors in those three cases treated the grand jury as if it was a trial jury. It's not a trial jury. Uh, It's in secret. It's not an adversary process. And so the prosecutor can present the evidence in a way that foreordains what the outcome is going to be. So it's like they're rigging. It is rigged, yeah, sure. Yeah. That was a segue by me, by the way, to the article that you had sent me. Right. Or the publication, or what would you call it? It was, a, it was a law paper that you wrote? A law journal article, yes. A law journal article that Stephen had sent me prior to uh, the podcast uh, that he wrote for the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law in 2016. It was called Rigged, When Race and Poverty Determine Outcomes in the Criminal Courts. There are three things I took from it, and I just wanted you to elaborate more on them okay we already talked about the power of the prosecution right where they have the right whether or not to charge the defendant right the severity of the punishment that's sought and of course the selection of the jurors but there are two other things that you said first was the lack of access to competent representation if they even receive it at all and early in the article you had said that 
the poor and people of color have had bad or low, no legal representation in capital cases. They've had lawyers that have represented them that have slept through trials, <laughs> abandoned clients, missed filing deadlines, or filed negligent pleadings. Yes. And in some states, they set a very low bar for a requirement of what a lawyer needs to be able to represent somebody in one of these capital cases. Yes. Do you believe that's by design? It's a combination of indifference and design. Okay. Uh, the Supreme Court said in 1963 that any person charged with a serious crime was entitled to a lawyer. But what the court did not say is how to pay for it. And so you had many states that had never provided people with lawyers. And now they had to decide how are we going to provide lawyers to people. Well, it's going to cost a lot of money. You're going to have to set up public defender systems. But a lot of states did not set up public defender systems. They just conscripted lawyers. They said anybody who's a member of the bar, anybody who practices law, has to take so many court-appointed cases. And then some states like Alabama and Texas have gone to where, you know, they do pay the lawyers, but they pay them a fairly small amount of money, and it differs from place to place. I want to make that clear. But in a lot of places, lawyers handle a high volume of cases, spend very little time on each case, because the only way they can make money is to have a lot of cases and spend a little bit of time on each case. And so um, the result of that is that people have really very, very poor legal representation. And that's, that's a real scandal that's going on in courts. And it's particularly egregious when you see somebody sentenced to death, as has happened in three different cases in Houston, the defense lawyer slept during the trial. I mean, that's unacceptable in any kind of case, but it's extremely unacceptable in a capital case, in a death penalty case. Yeah, somebody's life is literally somebody's on the line. Somebody's life is literally on the line. And one of those people, Carl Johnson, who was sentenced to death in Texas with a lawyer who slept during his trial, was executed by the state of Texas. And there's another man, George McFarlane, who's on death row in Texas as we speak, who is facing execution. And his lawyer slept during his trial. So the courts have been unwilling to deal with even the most egregious cases of incompetent lawyering. In a case like that, couldn't someone say it's a mistrial or something to say that you don't have competent representation? Well, what should happen is the judge should do that. Yeah. I mean, in one of the Texas cases, a reporter for the Houston Chronicle asked the judge how he could preside over a case where the lawyer was sleeping and even snoring. And the judge said, well, the Constitution guarantees you a lawyer, but it doesn't guarantee that the lawyer has to be awake. I mean, that's the regard that some judges have for the right to a lawyer. That's like saying everyone has a right to water, but no one said that water can't be contaminated. Right. Yeah. So a phrase that you had in the article was meet them and plead them. Right. And this isn't necessarily with respect to capital cases, but all the no. way down to you know felonies and misdemeanors. Well, what you often see, and I see this in courtrooms all the time, you see all these African-American men in jumpsuits in a totally degrading way to appear in court in jumpsuits. Some of the jumpsuits I see are the old-fashioned black and white stripes. I mean, looks like the old prison uniforms of the 1920s. And they're all handcuffed together, and they're all in leg shackles. And they're brought in together. Of course, they, they, they're handcuffed to each other. 
so then the lawyer goes and talks to them. Well, it's not a private conversation because if you're handcuffed to somebody on either side of you, they can hear, and the lawyer will talk for five or ten minutes, uh, and then the judge will take the bench, and the lawyer will stand up, and all these people will plead guilty and be sentenced by the judge, and you've seen it all. That was all the lawyering they got. Was that five, ten minutes that the lawyer spent with them? Uh, and that's all the process they got. The judge comes in. Sometimes you'll see a judge line up like ten people all in front and have them all plead guilty together in a group and then go down the line and sentence them one at a time uh, after they've pled guilty. I mean, this is another time when all the people watching realize this is a complete charade. There's been no an interview by a lawyer. There's been no investigation. There's been no assessment of the legal issues in the case. There's been nothing but meet them and plead them, just processing people through the system, checking off the box. Yes, they had a lawyer. Checking off the box. They were advised of their rights, and they pled guilty. Very often, people are pleading guilty to get out of jail because if you plead guilty, you'll get sentenced to time served or you'll get put on probation. If you plead not guilty, you go back to jail and you may wait a year for your trial. Well, what are you going to do in that situation? Most people are going to plead guilty because they need to get back to work. They need to get back to their family. They need to continue their life in the community. Uh, so a lot of uh, innocent people plead guilty to get out of jail. Because they want to get out, the lawyers that represent these people are incentivized because, like you said, they want to see as many people as possible. Right. So this system favors them making more money than actually taking the time to try to work these cases out. And by having a smaller number of public defenders, the actual municipality doesn't shell out as much money for public defenders. And it ultimately becomes a revenue generating thing that feeds upon itself. Well, you see a lot of municipal courts that don't even have lawyers for people who are accused. And, of course, as the Justice Department found with regard to Ferguson, and it's true with municipalities all over this country, the courts are revenue generating. These are courts of profit. They're not courts of justice. And people come in, and, of course, a person of means, a person's fined $1,500. They'll pay, and they'll never worry about it again. It's over with for them. If you're poor and you can't pay that much money, they'll say, oh, well, no problem. We'll put you on probation for 12 months, and you can pay in installments. But what they learn is you have to pay $40 a month to a private probation company just to take your check. They don't give you any supervision or they don't help deal with whatever problem may have brought you into the court that day. Mm -hmm. It's just a private for-profit operation that's making money off the poorest and most powerless people in society. And I see people who come in and who you know, after they've been trying to pay for a few months, they owe even more than they did at the start because they can't keep up with the fees. Mm -hmm. So it uh, becomes a feedback system where it's like because they can't pay, then they're arrested again because they haven't paid the fees. And they get thrown in jail. Of course, that's supposed to be illegal, but it's not. They're supposed to not be debtors' prisons. Uh, but there are debtors' prisons all over the country, and there are people who are in jail because they cannot pay their fees. And it's not a matter of them being unwilling to. These are people that aren't making any money. These people have no way to pay. And unfortunately, we try to nickel and dime these people to death. We charge them for everything. 
You know, coming to court, you see somebody, they're fined $500, but then they're given a lot of add-ons and fees and other things, and by the time it's all over, they owe $1,200. And then they can't pay it, and so they're put on the installment plan, and then they pay $40 a month to a private probation company. And sometimes the judge will say, well, you got to go to a drug program. you got to pay for that. you got to have an ankle monitor, $12 a day for that. you got to go to anger management class. You have to pay for that. Everything has a fee, mm -hmm. and you're dealing with people who can't pay the fees. Yeah. And the result of that is rather than helping people get out of the situation that brought them into the court, you only get them further and further and further in debt and entangled with the legal system, yes. which is destroying people and destroying families and destroying communities. And let's just say they want to apply for a different job, and the job on the application says... Have you ever been in on probation or are you on probation? Right. Or have you been arrested for a misdemeanor right. or whatever? Have you and been convicted? Yes. Have you been convicted? If they're truthful and they say, uh, yes, right. they have, they're not going to get the job. That's exactly right. So then their employment opportunities are limited. Right. And I want to go back to something else you had talked about earlier where um, if you decide to not plead guilty. Right. In addition to going back to jail, oftentimes, as you mentioned in the report, when you actually do have your trial, they'll seek an even stiffer penalty. Oh, no doubt about that. This is what we call the trial tax. The fact that people who turn down plea bargains are penalized when they exercise their constitutional right to trial. Well, I was just teaching my class at Georgetown, and we had the case of a man who was charged with writing a bad check for $88. And the state, the prosecutor in the state of Kentucky said, if you plead guilty, five years. Now, that's a ridiculous sentence for a bad check for $88. Ten days in jail would be a sufficient sentence. But anyway, he said five uh, years. And he said, and if you don't take it, I'm going to file papers so that you're a habitual offender and you get life imprisonment. Habitual offender? The guy said he had two prior convictions. Oh. And so the man said, well, I didn't write the bad check. And he went to trial, and he was convicted, and he was sentenced to life in prison for writing a bad check for $88. And that was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. When? In the 1980s. What was their argument for doing so? Well, the Supreme Court said that this was part of the give and take of the plea bargaining system. And I asked my students, I said, where was the give and take in this? This man had no ability. He could take the offer or he could go to trial. A fraudulent check of $88 lands you life in prison. Right. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Borden Kircher versus Hayes. Paul Hayes was the name of the man who wrote the bad check for $88. I guess we were talking about the last one already, generating revenue over rendering justice. Right. That's what we've been talking about. In your article, you'd also said that the judge in a lot of these small town municipalities, they'll wear several hats. Right. They'll be the prosecutor for one case. Right. They'll be the public defender for another case. Right. They'll be the judge for another case and can still hold their own private practice. Well, that's because a lot of these little municipalities, they only have court like one day a week. And so... Some lawyer there may be hired to be the judge, so he's a judge in that court. But then there's another little municipality down the way, and it's having court on another day of the week. He may be the prosecutor in that court. 
and then when he's not doing anything, he may be a defense lawyer in some other courts. I mean, you take like St. Louis uh, County there where Ferguson is, they had an incredible number of municipalities all in just that one county. So there are all these little courts and they're all courts of profit. They're all trying to make money for their little municipalities. And they're not worried about justice. They're not worried about doing the right thing for people in the community. How does one change that? Well, we have to decide that we want to have courts of justice and not courts of profit. We have to decide that the purpose of the courts is not revenue generation. The purpose of the courts is dealing with problems that come in. There are people who are injured. There are crimes that take place. But we have to decide, you know, are we going to lift people up? Are we going to try to restore people? Are we going to try to help people on their way? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people have drug issues. Putting them in jail or prison is not going to help. Putting them in some kind of drug program is going to help. There are a lot of children that get caught up in the system. What they need is an education, not being sent to prison. There's a lot of racial disparities. We need to be dealing with that and eliminating those and treating people fairly. Uh, but we don't need to send anybody to jail because they can't pay. That's absolutely illegal and immoral, and yet it's happening all the time in courts all across the country. I agree with you 100%. I wonder, can you regulate someone into being moral? Well, I, I tell you what the fundamental problem is. The Supreme Court says that you have to provide people with a lawyer. But the catch is the same governments that are prosecuting people, the same governments that want to execute people, to fine people, to imprison people, those same governments are supposed to provide them a lawyer to defeat the purpose that they have. So what is the incentive of a community like Ferguson that's trying to make as much money as it can off traffic tickets and other minor crimes to give people lawyers? They're just not going to do it. Now, you may get a court to order them to do it, but they always underfund public defender programs. Could this be solved by creating a new federal department called the Bureau of Public Defense. No, that's something that a lot of people have advocated. A lot of people have said it's the federal government that it gives you the right to a lawyer. It's the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, part of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. And that the states are unwilling to do this, the localities are unwilling to do this, and if we want this legal system to work, it's supposed to be an adversary system. It's supposed to be strong prosecutors and strong defense lawyers. If it's one-sided, it can't possibly work. If one side has all the resources and all the power and the other side is basically hapless and harried and overworked and under-resourced, it can't possibly work unless people are provided with competent lawyers who have the workload and the resources to give people competent and effective representation. The other thing, though, is, is no one wants to say, but I will, is that a lot of People like the fact that people are not well represented because it makes it easier for the prosecution to win all their cases. You know, unfortunately, some people want to take advantage of the fact that people are not well represented. One thing I talk a lot about is the need for 
public defender programs to be independent. They've got to be independent of the judges. They've got to be independent of the prosecutors and the executive. They have to be organizations that are determined uh, to help the clientele that they're responsible for. They're supposed to give people zealous representation. That's what the Constitution requires. But even at the state level, wouldn't they answer to like the governor? Well, it depends on what state you're in. There's some places that have very good public defender programs, New Jersey, Colorado. But you will see in some states one county that has an outstanding public defender program and another that awards the representation of their poor people accused of crimes to the lowest bidder. I mean, there are counties in California that literally award representing people to the lowest bidder. Well, you can imagine what kind of uh, representation you get from that. Someone falling asleep on you, on your capital case. Right. Let's be honest, okay? You are a white male lawyer from the South. And the issues that you've taken up to represent, be it a death penalty or representing the poor, representing people of color, uh, runs contrary to the stereotype that many would have of a white lawyer who's male from the South. Uh, Do you personally consider yourself an anomaly in this respect? Well, I wish there were more people that were dedicated to making sure that everybody uh, accused of crimes is adequately represented. That's the only way the system can work. And certainly, I wish there were more people, although there are more and more people, I must say, Uh, involved in representing people facing the death penalty because after all that's the ultimate I mean if the society is going to be putting people to death uh, the very least it can do is provide those people with competent legal representation I realized 35 years ago that the society was not doing that I saw cases in Georgia where people were represented literally by lawyers who refer to their own clients with a racial slur Mm. cases where lawyers didn't know the law cases where lawyers apologized to the jury for representing their clients because they thought it was hurting their business there in town that they were representing somebody in a death penalty case. So I left the practice I had in Washington, D.C., and I went to Georgia, and I spent the last 35, 40 years uh, representing people in death penalty cases. I have many, many good friends who, who do the work. I'm certainly no anomaly. There, there are a lot of people who are very... Uh, dedicated uh, to justice, but there's a need for more people to do that. Unfortunately, it doesn't pay very well, and there's a a greater need than there are people sometime to meet the needs. But I'm very encouraged. I teach law school. I have wonderful students who are dedicated to going out. They want to learn how to represent people. They want to get out of law school and go help people. And I just keep trying each year to teach as many people as I can and encourage them and share with them what I know and hope that, you know, we're going to do something about these problems. I mean, it's always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be a struggle. But we just have to realize fairness requires that people be adequately defended. Otherwise, the system is rigged, which is what I point out. Yeah. And you grew up during the civil rights era, correct? I did. I grew up during what I call the Martin Luther King era in American history between the Montgomery bus boycott and the assassination of Dr. King. I also grew up in a segregated community in Kentucky, in central Kentucky. And during the time that I was growing up, my sophomore year of high school was when the uh, schools integrated. Up until that time, they were segregated. 
on the basis of race. Uh, everything, the barbershops, the businesses, everything in my little community uh, was, was segregated on the basis of race. And so that was the central issue of uh, my childhood growing up. Dr. King was just so central to that part of my life. And the lessons I took away from that, and I think the lessons Dr. King gave us, was that the most important things we needed to be concerned about uh, were racism, poverty, materialism, and militarism. Uh, and the thing we needed to worry the least about was how much money uh, we were making if we were able to get along okay in the world. And uh, those are immensely valuable lessons. Uh, that's what I took away from that. And uh, it's worked for me. I don't know if it's worked for other people, but it certainly worked for me. Because it's worked for you, it's worked for all of us because you've been doing amazing work. And I pray that you continue to do so. Well, thank you very much. We'll keep on keeping on as long as we can. You ready for the seven questions? Oh, I forgot all about the seven questions. Sure. <laughs> all right. What's it called, y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions. Wait, it's the questions. It's the questions. Yeah, the questions. Question number one. What is the book that you would add to the library here at the end? It's the questions. I think I would have Anthony Ray Hinton's book, When the Sun Does Shine. It's a book of a man who spent 30 years on death row in Alabama for a crime he didn't do. Uh, actually, there's, if I can offer a second book as well, because there's a man named Anthony Graves uh, wrote a book. Uh, Anthony Graves spent 18 years uh, locked up in, uh, in Texas. Uh, both these men uh, were sentenced to death for crimes they did not commit. And both write books in which they describe how when they were arrested, they both said to their mothers, don't worry, I'm going to be back. I've just got to go straighten this out. There's been a mistake. I'm going to go uh, tell what happened. Uh, when they got down there and they said, do you want to take a polygraph? Absolutely, I want to take a polygraph. Do you want to go in the grand jury? Absolutely, put me in the grand jury. Don't need a lawyer, no. And then slowly but surely this incredible nightmare developed where they're accused of this capital crime uh, and all of a sudden, before they know it, they're on trial and they're convicted and they're sentenced to death and they're sent to death row, one in Alabama and one in Texas. And then we... We, we learn how eventually uh, they were exonerated uh, and, and, and were freed. Uh, everybody got to read one or both of these books. They're very, they're good reads and they really, I think, bring home just what can happen to anybody in the court system that anybody, but particularly both of these uh, men are black men and if you're black and poor and um, you know, you're suspected of something like this and this kind of nightmare can happen. I think a lot of people don't think that can happen, but we know now today, used to be, people would say, well, I don't think any innocent people are convicted. We know today that's just not true. We have DNA evidence that proves every day that somebody has been convicted as innocent and proves that somebody else did the crime. So we know not only who didn't do it, we know who did do it. And, um, and we have cell phones which show us things that we didn't know before. Uh, so... We know a lot today thanks to these two developments, DNA and cell phones, uh, but we also know a lot because of testaments uh, people like Anthony Ray Hinton and Anthony Graves. Uh, it would be very good to see what they have to say. What was the name of the book by Anthony Graves? Infinite Hope. I'm curious before we move on. Uh, the Sun Does Shine? Yes. And The Sun Does Shine 
by the way, was an, an Oprah Winfrey uh, book of the month. Yes, yes, it was book club summer twenty eighteen. Yes, the metaphor of the sun does shine. Does the book focus on? I guess is it a, a story of personal change or is it a story of highlighting the system? No, it's a story of how an innocent man was. Uh, arrested and tried and convicted and sent to death row for 30 years. 30 years. And got to know people on death row in Alabama who then got taken down the hall and put in the electric chair and he smelled the burning flesh when they were put to death, person after person after person. I mean, it's quite quite a story. And uh, he never lost hope. Uh, but 30 years is a long, long part of your life. Uh, number two, podcast to subscribe. Two, I would recommend two. One, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution breakdown. Now in its seventh season, the legal affairs reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Bill Rankin, is the primary host of that podcast, which takes different cases in the criminal courts and analyzes them. It's extraordinarily well done. Uh, the other is the podcast by American Public Media called In the Dark, season two, which is the, uh, an incredibly well-reported podcast about the case of Curtis Flowers, who was tried six times for murders that took place in Wyona, Mississippi. And ultimately, his case was just decided last summer by the Supreme Court of the United States. Over and over, courts have found race discrimination in the jury selection process in Curtis Flowers' case. It's an excellent, both of these are excellent podcasts. Yeah, the In the Dark podcast, episode number 40. Uh, it's a lady who does a uh, Facebook page called uh, Ayana's Podcast of the Day, and she highly recommended that. Oh, she good. was saying how he was tried six times, and, right. and each time the prosecutor tried to come back and get him right. again. Right. Well, yeah. he's probably going to be tried a seventh time. Wow. And he's, he's still in jail. He's on death row. He's spent almost his entire adult life. Uh, either in row. jail or on death row in, uh, in Mississippi, yes. Wow. Number three, something that you didn't know that you needed until you got it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Maybe like a good pair of socks or a nice pen? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe with computers. You know, in the early days, we were in, doing the work that we were doing in the South, and somewhere on the line, I became aware of the fact that there were computers in the very earliest stages of computers and did a little research and found that we could get these Kaypro computers, K-A-Y-P-R-O, and they looked like sewing machines. And you unflipped them down and there was a teeny little screen and then there were two disk drives and you put a floppy disk in each one, one that had the program, like word processing, and one that had the document on it. And I guess that is a pretty good example of that because we realized once we got that that we were really very self-sufficient. And when I went to Mississippi to try a death penalty case, I could take that computer. Like I said, it was like a sewing machine. It was that big. It wasn't really a, a, like a little laptop yeah, today. Yeah, it wasn't a laptop, no. And a huge printer. But we could take that and put it in the hotel where we were staying and we could write our own pleadings and print out our briefs and our motions and it made us a whole lot more efficient. We could do all kinds of things. And that's a good example, just mm -hmm. what you were asking about. 
All right. Uh, number four, bucket list place to travel. This is a place in the world that you have been to that you'd recommend the listeners add to their bucket list. Yeah, Johannesburg, South Africa, okay. and the Apartheid Museum there. I think that uh, it's very important that uh, we confront the past, and I think South Africa has done a remarkable job with that. And uh, we now have in Montgomery, Alabama, the uh, National Memorial to uh, the Lynching Memorial, the Lynching Memorial, as well as the Legacy Museum, mm -hmm. which are basically the sort of American equivalents of that, and uh, something everyone should see whenever they can. Okay, number five, fifty-mile detour restaurant. Well, I'd recommend the pizza restaurants in the Italian uh, section, uh, Wooster Street in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I would certainly say anyone who's in the New Haven area, uh, those are extraordinary, uh, marvelous restaurants that look just like you're back in the, who knows when, the 1900s or something, uh, in terms of the ovens and the pizzas and all that, and, and they're great. I have a friend who lives in New Haven. Yeah. There's a really famous pizza place where you get the white clam yeah, pizza. Yeah, right. What's right. that place called? Uh, Frank Peppy's, I think. Peppy's, okay. Yeah. Should I put that one down? Peppy's and Sally's. Well, I'm recommending the whole Wooster Street <laughs> okay. neighborhood. Okay, so Wooster Street for pizza. Right, okay. New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. Number six, your number one skill. This is your number one honed craft thing you've worked at. Well, I think as a lawyer, your skill has to be expressing yourself in writing, uh, writing briefs, uh, writing motions, uh, writing articles. Uh, so that's what comes to mind. Okay. And lastly, number seven, your number one talent. This is something that's innate. You're born with it. Well, I, I probably learned at some point that I speak louder than most people, and I suppose I've tried to do the best I could to make some value with that. Mm -hmm. This is like uh, volume. Well, I'm sort of saying that jokingly, but yes. Yeah, yes. okay. My voice carries, let's put it that way. So I you know, tried to be heard on behalf of people who speak in voices that are too faint uh, to be heard over the, the multitude. As an advocate. Right. That's funny. Episode number 70, that's her number one. Oh, really? As well. Yeah, oh, okay. like exactly like that. She's like, I have a loud voice, but right. I also advocate for people as well. So well, I'll have to listen to that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Stephen, this has been great. Well, thank you for having me. Do you have any uh, social media or uh, website or contact info that you want to share with the listeners in case they well, want to reach out to you? my website at Yale Law School, it has links to my articles, pretty much everything that I have. This would be law.yale.edu slash Stephen with a PH dash B dash bright like a light bulb right that's it all right ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to guestbook podcast for this wonderful and informative episode with Stephen bright again thank you for coming on Stephen. if you all want to reach me the email is innkeeper at unionindc.com and the website is the suffix unionindc.com and on instagram i got three handles for the podcast, it's at Guestbook Pod. For VN, it's at Union in DC. And my personal is at Innkeeper Freddy. And that's with two D's and an IE. 
Again, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.